Hi there, and welcome back to the State of Education, presented by One Room Education. I'm Katie, and today I'll be your guide as we discuss how the government has been controlling what your children learn in public and private institutions for the past 40 plus years. Through bribery, public shaming, and the conditioning of our nation's youth to mistrust anyone who isn't viewed as an authority figure. Today I'll be covering a wide range of topics, including the funding of public and private educational institutions by the federal government, how that funding is used to keep well-meaning educators and community members silent to the overt anti-education and anti-American practices and messages within the schools, who is benefiting from the implementation of these policies, and finally, what we can do as members of our communities and citizens of the United States to start correcting this problem. So come on in and have a seat while we discuss the government's war on real education. Part two, recent changes and the idea of school choice. I'm going to go ahead and start off today's episode by doing a quick recap of the main points from last week's episode, because you do kind of need to know them to understand contextually where I'm picking up this week. Last week, we talked about what a real education is. So a real education or a classical education is teaching reading, writing, math, and civics to all citizens to a level of proficiency. So this means that you have taught them the basic skills that they need to then know how to learn, so how to teach themselves something new, and how to think, so how to interpret that information that they've learned for themselves. The idea of a real education allow students and lifelong learners alike to educate themselves on subjects they are most interested in and would like to pursue as a career path. Because remember, this type of education sets you up to be a lifelong learner. So if you went to school to learn one thing and you get laid off or that industry becomes obsolete because of technology, if you are taught in a classical way, then you'll know how to do the research and teach yourself new skills to then become marketable in another industry. The real education also allows students and other individuals, so like adults and stuff like I was saying, to start their career path so much sooner than the for-profit post-secondary funnel that is the modern education system in America. We also discussed how high-stake testing required of students to graduate high school in the United States is actually leading to an increased level of dropouts over the past 50 years or so. So what is the government that we pay literally billions of dollars to fix issues like this for us, according to their own websites and reports, doing about these issues. Well, (laughs) as with most issues the government gets involved with, it has decided that the answer is, that's right, 
just throw more money at it. <laughs> well, throw more money at it that has to make it work, right? Because we all know that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. Fun fact, that quote that pretty much everybody I know knows is by Albert Einstein. There's no actual evidence that links Einstein to that quote. That's right. There you go. <laughs> That's your state of education random fact of the day. Hope you enjoyed it. <laughs> That's gonna be the one thing you remember out of this entire episode and I know it. So if it is at the end of the episode, if the only thing you can actually remember is that Einstein didn't actually say that quote, please make sure to leave me a comment on one of my social medias about it. <laughs> So let's go ahead and start breaking down some of the spending for the 2018 to 2019 school year. According to the NES, there was $13,187 spent per student in public pre-K through 12 schools. That means that each student in the United States who attended public school received a bare minimum expenditure of that amount. Since this is only the federal government's contribution and doesn't include the state or local funding. If you take this amount and multiply it by the number of public school students we found for 2020 in the last episode, there were 49.4 million public school students. You get roughly $651,437,800,000 spent on educating students who attend public schools throughout the United States. According to the same NCES report, again, that's available in the show notes over at one-roomeducation.com if you want to take a look at it. The total expenditures for public schools K through 12 in the U.S. were, dude, I can't even get my head around this number. Ready? $667 billion. <laughs> That's the total expenditure on K through 12 public schools only by the federal government in one year. That's one year. That's so much money. So that means that we as the taxpayers, right? Because where's the government get their money? Through taxes. We as taxpayers paid $667 billion to educate the youth of America for one year. So when I saw that number, I was like, wow, obviously, you hear I'm still a little fired up about it. But I really was wondering what they include in the per student spending. Because per student spending can mean different things depending on which state you're in or which district you're in even. 
So I found this amazingly informative post on governing.com that explains what's included in the general per student spending. And it breaks it down by federal government, state governments, and districts. So like the District of Columbia. And according to this governing.com post, the per student spending includes the following. Instructional employee salaries and benefits, pupil support, instructional staff support, general administration costs, school administration costs, and everyone's favorite category, other. <laughs> Whatever falls under other. If, if you've done anything with accounting, you know that other is your favorite category. Um, if you want to see this information on the governing.com statistics and their breakdown of the numbers, I believe it's for the 2018 school year. I will make sure to go ahead and have that linked again over at one-roomeducation.com for you in the show notes for this episode. According to the NCES report that we were just talking about, there were roughly 3.2 million public school teachers in the U.S. for that same 2018 to 2019 school year. Now, you have to remember that this is only the federal government's contribution that I've been talking about so far. This doesn't include state or local fundings at all. So the total amount of funding provided to public schools in the United States is $667 billion from the federal government plus the funds allotted by the respective state and local governments. That's a lot of money at stake for the education system and the political hierarchy that actually runs it. This educational system that I'm talking about, I'm not just talking about your local school districts or the state school boards or anything like that. I'm talking about the people that make the tests and the people that manufacture them, so the writers and the manufacturers, the textbook publishers, the federal and state standard compliance auditors and officers, and so on and so on and so on, however far down that rabbit hole you want to go. But don't worry. <laughs> no, no, don't worry. This isn't just a public education problem, though. It's also extended to the private school systems. Since a majority of private schools accept some form of public financing for scholarships and grants that they then provide to quote-unquote underprivileged students. Now I'm not saying that it's a bad thing that underprivileged students get scholarships and grants from these schools. I'm just questioning profit motives. That's all. What this means for you, the parent or the student listening to this, or even the teacher who happens to still be listening, thank you for sticking around. <laughs> 
This means that the same people who ensure that the public school teaches compliance and obedience also ensures that the private schools do too. The issues that plague the public school systems are truly systemic and have leached into the private schools by way of funding teachers and administrator salaries. This is because in order for private schools to ensure that they have top-rated teachers, they have to ensure that they offer a competitive salary for these teachers and administrators. This leads to the aforementioned publicly funded grants to provide scholarships and other academic aid to the underprivileged students. Now, you might be wondering how a private school gets funding from the government or why that would make them subscribe to the same general cultural cohesiveness in education of the compliance and teaching what to think and what to learn as opposed to how to think and how to learn. Because when all of this started, the private schools were actually outside of the sphere of influence of this money because it was rich people paying for their own stuff and they could tell people to go take a leap somewhere. But that's really no longer the case. And when you start accepting money from someone, they expect you to comply with their wishes. Now, with all of this being said, with all of the statistics and all of this information, I want to say one very, very important fact that kind of encompasses my entire issue with most of what's going on in the education system today. Are you ready? The federal funding of education is illegal. There, I said it. I did, I did, I said it. The federal funding of education is illegal. Point blank and blatant. Let me explain. The federal funding of education isn't supposed to be allowed according to the Constitution of the United States and the 10th Amendment specifically. The 10th Amendment states that, quote, the power not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively or to the people, unquote. This means that any responsibility that is not explicitly stated in the Constitution as the responsibility of the federal government or not the responsibility of the state was supposed to be handled by the individual states. So what's my issue with this? Okay, this means the education of the citizenry is the responsibility of each individual state and not the federal government. Why would this be so important? Why would something as important as the education of our nation's future be left up to each state instead of a standardized version by the federal government? You know what? That is a great question. It really is. Let me explain. Well, okay, let's look at it this way. When 
the United States was founded, and even today, each state is set up to run as a mini country of sorts that are part of a collective defense treaty, essentially. Think like the modern day EU, right? You have these individual legacy countries like UK, well, not the UK anymore, um, France, Germany, Italy, Greece. So all of these countries that we know by themselves are all part of the EU. Why would they be members of the EU? For economic and defense benefits, supposedly anyways. That is the exact same general setup that the United States is supposed to have. You have the member states, so all 50 states, and you have the overarching body that holds those states together in economic issues and in defensive issues. That's the U.S. federal government. Now, this is also the reason why you hear that, you'll, you'll hear whenever they talk about the economy of the United States, right? They'll say that California alone has the fourth largest economy in the world by itself. But they are politically run very, very differently from the coal mining country of West Virginia, Ohio, and Pennsylvania that fuel the electric plants to enable the economic growth in California. You see, the needs of the Californian economy are very different in regards to education than they are in, say, rural Kentucky or Virginia. So the states are supposed to have the autonomy to teach their own students the necessary skills and information needed to succeed in their local and regional economies, not that of the large population centers of California, New York, Chicago, you know, those places, because the founding fathers understood that not everyone is going to live in these large population centers, that it was going to end up being a mixed economy in the United States, and that each individual region, because of geography mainly, but for some other reasons as well, each individual region was going to have their own educational needs. So that's why the education system was originally set up the way it was, and why the education of the children of the United States was left up to the individual states and not the federal government. Because as you've heard, if you listen to the news in the past few years, the federal government tends to be run or at least extremely influenced by the large population centers. In, and I keep saying California and New York because that's the East Coast, West Coast giant population centers, right? The rest of the country, essentially, does not run like those economies. And they don't have the same culture as the rest of the country on a very basic level for the most part. And the founding fathers knew this and they wanted to make sure that each individual area would have what they needed for their children to survive and thrive within those individual state economies. So what happened... And how are the schools federally funded if that funding 
goes directly against the Constitution and the hopes and wishes of the Founding Fathers. Well, <laughs> here's what happened. What happens is that the federal government decided during the Reconstruction era, after the Civil War, that they needed to ensure that all citizens, including recently freed black slaves, were going to have access to an education, which, awesome, I think that's a really good idea. That was a really great concept. But as Milton Friedman said, nothing is so permanent as a temporary government program. So they founded the Modern Department of Education to gather statistics on literacy and other educational issues. Again, mostly in the South, but they couldn't say that because, you know, there was still some hurt feelings about it. And they didn't want to be like, you guys misbehaved. So, you know, we're going to check up on you now. <laughs> they couldn't really do that. And Congress unknowingly, I think, for the most part, laid the groundwork for what I view to be the source of almost all modern education issues within the United States. Congress granted the Department of Education funding to disperse as they saw fit to universities in the form of grants to help educate farmers and land grant holders as part of the Western expansion. And this general idea of giving money from the federal government to the state schools through grants slowly trickled down to what we have today, which is federally funded pre-K through college, sometimes even like doctorates, but that depends on what kind of grants and loans you're able to take out. So the money that public and private schools receive today from the federal government is conditional on the compliance and maintenance of a minimum average standardized test score for each grade. This was established and expanded on by the No Child Left Behind Act of 2001, which, side note, will get its own episode because it is, I believe, was the final nail in the coffin of the integrity of the education system in America. And I will back that up with plenty of evidence, trust me. <laughs> but that's an episode coming up. So make sure that you go ahead and hit that subscribe button or follow me on whichever platform you happen to be listening to me on so you don't miss that when it comes out. This means that the federal government can technically say that they're not directly funding or directing the education of the American people. But they are simply providing funds to the states and individual schools who choose to opt into their federally funded programs. Because remember, participation in these programs is optional. So what the, 
what this is essentially is like your little sister sitting in the back seat and saying, I'm not touching you and holding her finger like a millimeter away from you while your mom and dad watch waiting for your sister to finally touch you whenever they hit a pothole or something, right? <laughs> You're just waiting for them to cross that line. Currently, as of February of 2022, that's when I'm recording this episode, there are nine states and one territory that have opted out of the Common Core Race to the Top initiative. And updated versions of the NCLB, the No Child Left Behind Act, from the federal government. These nine states have taken a huge amount of heat from the unions, from the individual teachers, from administrators, and from parents who just don't know about the programs. But what they've heard from the unions and the teachers and the administrators is that they're turning down these desperately needed funds to help ensure everyone has access to an equal education. Well, like I said earlier, that's just not how our system was set up to work. And I feel that it's not how it should work either. Not the fact that that everyone should have equal access to an education because that should be. But the federal government is not the ones that should be ensuring that access. It should be the state and local governments. But more on that later, like I said, I'm doing a whole episode on the No Child Left Behind and Common Core specifically. So again, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss that in-depth, dedicated episode to those issues and how they control our current education system. At this point in the episode, you're probably thinking, Katie, if all the numbers are so bad, then who is trying to keep this going? Because I know my kids' teachers wouldn't want to keep this going if it was really that bad. Well, you're kind of right. So essentially, it's the teachers' unions and politicians who are working together to fund the schools as public for-profit institutions. So essentially, teachers' unions and politicians are working together to fund the schools as public for-profit institutions where the people at the top get paid more and more money and the politicians keep getting elected to make the situation quote-unquote better but the teachers the individual in-classroom teachers and the students keep kind of getting left holding the bag right because while the political upper administration and unions of these schools work with politicians so they're both making money, the teachers and the rest of the support staff and the students are the ones who end up suffering because the money that's supposed to be going to them for classroom supplies and textbooks and I don't know, an air conditioner in Arizona, I don't, I don't know, stuff that the money should be going towards is going towards paying other things. 
specifically these people in the political realm of education. And it really ends up starting to affect the quality of teachers that you are able to get in the classroom because teachers pay for supplies and activities out of their own pockets. While students are left trying to figure out why what they're learning in school isn't actually helping them at all in their real lives. We as teachers have all had that high schooler at some point that has said, why do I have to learn algebra too? Or why do I have to learn calculus? Or why do I have to learn who Napoleon Bonaparte was? Because this has nothing to do with my real life and I've got bills to pay, right? So it really creates this tense atmosphere that you then expect kids to learn in. And it's just, it's never a good combination. So now that we know what the problems are, how can we possibly begin to fix it? Because if the problem starts at the base level with the teachers unions, the political teachers unions and local politicians and goes all the way up to the federal government and the federal bureaucracy that employs hundreds of people, how are we possibly supposed to fight this? Well, it is going to be a daunting task, but I want to give you hope because it is absolutely doable. And what it's going to take is it's going to take parents like you and students like you. And yes, you, the teacher who has, God bless you, stuck with me till this point <laughs> to stand up and advocate for these things that I'm about to talk about. Because if you don't stand up and advocate for them, you can't expect other people to do it for you. And you are the ones that have your students and your children's best interest at heart. And no one's going to advocate for them as well as you can. So here we go. I believe that the first step is to institute the practice of school choice in every single state. Now, this is a state level thing that you can do. Or even as some places, I think Colorado has one specific county within the state. So it is a local and a state thing that you can do. You can advocate for, you can sign petitions, and you can make a change within one school year and see a huge difference. So school choice is something that is done at the state and local level, like I just said. And it allows students to choose which school they go to within a given area. Currently, there are 22 of the 50 states that offer fully available school choice. This means that not only do they offer the options to go to different schools, but they also facilitate the transportation for the, your students to get to those schools. Because I know there's certain places in Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania is not included in the school choice state list, but there's some places where they say that they offer school choice between like five districts, but they don't offer transportation. So if you have, if you as the parent have to work during school hours, 
then your kid's going to have to go to your local school district because there's no way for your kid to get back and forth to the other school district. So while they try to say that they offer this school choice, it's not actually a viable option for the majority of families who have their children attending the public schools. If you're interested in a full list of the 22 states that do offer fully inclusive school choice, I do have a link to the full list over at one-roomeducation.com so that you can have access to that as well because that's what One Room Education is all about. I'm about informing you and then giving you the information yourself to learn it yourself and then come to your own conclusions. Now, I live in Ohio and Ohio is a school choice state. School choice makes it so that every school district has to tell you, the parents and students, why you should send your children to that school. And they have to provide unique opportunities for the students within that district so that the students continue to attend. Because as advertising companies know, if you can get the children to want something, they will nag the parents into getting it for them. So this is the same thing. Around the beginning of school time around here, you see billboards everywhere for the four local school districts that are here because they're all competing to get the kids to sign up. This creates competition within the public education sector that makes them actually accountable for their courses and extracurricular offerings to their communities. This is instead of the monopolistic practices of, like I said, Pennsylvania and many other states that either require you to attend the school district that you live in or essentially do some form of homeschooling. Those are pretty much your options. In school choice states, the allotted state and local funding for each student goes to the school in which they are enrolled, not to the district in which they live, which I think is awesome because I know in Pennsylvania, some, some places you're allowed to have a school choice, but the funding for you as a student, the per student spending that you would normally get still goes to your local school district. That way they don't lose any funding. But that's a totally separate set of issues. It's, it's really crooked, but that's beside the point. One other great thing about school choice is it allows for specialization within each school. This means that, for example, the school district that I live in has a specialization in agricultural science and mechanical trades, which makes total sense because, of course, I live on a mountaintop in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> and while we focus on the agriculture and mechanics, there's a school a few districts over that specializes in computer and STEM programs. It's all within a reasonable driving radius. If you participate in music and the arts or a certain type of athletics, you can pick a school that has the best program for that particular extracurricular activity. So whether you're looking for the actual curriculum, the course materials, or whether you're looking for extracurricular activities, 
you can pick where you want to go. You can mix and match to decide what is going to create the best future for you. School choice allows students to have the choice to receive more focused and specialized training while they're still in high school. So they can enter the job market with skills and knowledge that's actually valued by that job market that most students from other states that don't have school choice actually have to attend the for-profit post-secondary institutions to receive. And remember from part one, roughly 35.7% of all young working age adults between the ages of 15 and 29 were in some form of degree program in 2020. That makes it much, much harder to compete at those levels for a good paying and a fulfilling career. So why wouldn't you try to start your kid off with the best possible foundation of knowledge in whichever career they actually want to pursue? School choice gives you that option. The next step is to educate our students about their rights and responsibilities as citizens of the United States and the actual history behind our nation. Now, I'm not talking about the reformed history that paints America as either the ultimate hero dun, 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 or the ultimate villain of the world. You know, I'm not, I'm not talking about either one of those, but I am talking about a balanced, realistic telling of the history of our nation with the historical context, framing, and understanding of the events. Because let's face it, the U.S. is no saint when it comes to staying out of stuff and not stirring things up around the world. But like I said in a few episodes back, we are a nation of ideals. And anytime you're talking about ideals, they're usually going to be fallen short of. And that needs to be the understanding that our students in the public systems and private systems is getting. That you know what, we're not perfect, but we have been able to create a society that allows you to act the way that you're acting without any sort of political or legal backlash. So you're welcome. And that's what needs to be presented to them. We need to reintroduce mandatory civics classes for all students, grades five and above with an introduction to citizenship starting in third grade. Absolutely, no questions. Don't worry, I'll be explaining more about that next week. In part three, the removal of civics and history from the central curriculum, where we'll be talking about all of the solutions I see to the numerous problems that I've presented so far in parts one and two of this mini-series on the government's war on real education. I wanted to take a minute to say thank you so much for joining me today and sticking with me through the last couple of episodes. And I appreciate you being here to be part of the solution and how to fix the broken education system in America. Because while I've thrown a lot of information at you and a lot of depressing facts, if I'm being completely honest and I'm totally aware of it, my goal is to 
show you what's going on, give you the context of what's going on. And then I'm going to empower you on how you can take steps to make this better in your own community. It doesn't matter if you're a parent, it doesn't matter if you're a student, it doesn't matter if you're a teacher within the communities. Every single member of a community creates the culture of it. And you as a member of that community have a say in the direction that that community's culture takes. If you enjoyed yourself at all today, please make sure that you're subscribed on whichever podcast platform you happen to be listening to me on right now. If you would like to see a full list of one room education content, including ways that you can support our work, please head on over to one-roomeducation.com. Again, that's the word one, O-N-E, dash room, education.com. While you're there, you can sign up to get updates right to your inbox whenever we post new content. Please make sure to follow us on social media to get behind the scenes content and so much more. On Facebook, you can find us at One Room Education, all one word. And on Instagram, you can find me at One Room underscore education. Thank you so much again for joining me today. And I look forward to seeing you next time as we discuss the removal of civics and history from the central curriculum right here on the state of education. I'll see you next time.